Welcome to ETF Working Lunch, an ETF.com podcast in partnership with Women in ETFs. We sit down with some of the smartest women in our business and we talk shop every other week. I'm Cynthia Murphy here with my colleague, Lara Krieger. Hello, everyone. And today we are diving into factor ETF investing. Joining us is Holly Framstead, head of U.S. ETF product segments for iShares. Thanks for being here, Holly. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, congrats on your promotion. Um, We would love for you to tell us a little bit about what you're up to at iShares these days. Tell us a little bit about your journey within BlackRock and quite frankly, why factors appeal to you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, it's it, it's definitely exciting. I I have held a number of roles at BlackRock. I have spent virtually my entire career with this firm, and I've in that process been able, I think, to to continue to build a career that is uh, different enough and and interesting enough, constantly changing, which is quite frankly why I am still here. I have worked across our um, businesses in the Americas, so I've spent dedicated time with Latin America, with Canada. And then, of course, with the U.S. business, and I've managed portfolios, and and then for the sort of the second half of my career, have had roles like the one I'm in now in in strategic product segments. So the idea is, I work with clients to help explain some of the more products, prod, complex products, and distill those ideas in very digestible frameworks. So it's a it's sort of a sales oriented role, and then certainly a product innovation role. And I think the the common thread across all of the different functions that I have served within BlackRock is that I have spent most of my career building the iShares franchise and and focusing on iShares investments. And at its core, I believe very firmly in systematic and index-based investing because I think by distilling investment theses down to a set of rules, you can actually deliver an exposure that's differentiated than the market but that brings that performance at a very low price point. And the lower the price point, the lower the hurdle rate to achieving that result for the end client. So I think um, the mission of BlackRock really to deliver better financial futures for our clients holds true. And all of the product segments, um, certainly that I think we're going to talk about today, really meet that standard. And and so that's what gets me excited and out of bed in the morning. Hmm. Well, it's a, you know, when you look at a factor investing within BlackRock iShares, I mean, you have 44 single factor and multi-factor ETFs. There's more than $130 billion in assets invested in these funds based on what I counted this morning. <laughs> and uh, some of the biggest tickers in there are your minimum volatility, USMV, quality, QUAL, the dividends, DVY. I mean, it's a, a list of who's who in this space, basically. Um, you also have a, a relatively new lineup of style box ETFs that break up, you know, your value growth and different blends opportunities. You know, as an end investor, there's so much to digest here. So before we dive into your outlook for factor investing, what you like, what you don't like, you know, I'd love for you to tell us, is there a best practice way to navigate this massive number of ETF choices? How do you know if you're getting really good clean factor exposure in the ETF you choose? It's a fabulous question. And I think the the assumption that you can look at 
the top line category of factor ETFs and that they will all look the same or deliver on similar outcomes is as flawed as saying, let's look at the large cap style box category and expect that all of those managers are delivering the same results. So due diligence is incredibly important here. The difference between a single factor exposure, like a fund that just invests in high quality companies versus a multi-factor exposure, which maybe is combining some of these beneficial attributes like value and quality and momentum together, they're going to perform quite differently and deliver on different objectives. Minimum volatility and dividend yield also very fundamentally different. And so I think first and foremost, it's about understanding the role that the investment is supposed to play in the portfolio. Are you trying to mitigate risk? Maybe think about dividend or minimum volatility and quality as an example there. If you want income, start with dividend yield products. If you're looking for expressing a view or a tool that allows you to do that, single factors can be really helpful. So I think focus on the objective first and foremost. Second, understand how you want to size the trade. So if it's going to be a substantial portion of your portfolio, then making sure that you have an investment that controls for risks like sector exposures, that maybe isn't taking on a ton of excess risk versus the market is, is going to be important to you as an investor. So looking at the basic metrics like tracking error, like sector breakdowns um, that you would explore doing due diligence on any fund is important. And then finally, if you're looking for, for purity and factor exposure, then BlackRock's developed tools called the Factor Box, which is available both through our advisor center for financial advisors or even just on the website. If you go to factorbox.com, you can enter the ticker of any fund and see its relative exposure to factors, which gives you a perspective on how value-oriented your value fund is, and I think provides a really interesting way to look at the difference between, say, a market cap weighted value exposure, which have been in the market for a long time, and the newer sort of factor value exposures um, and factor value funds. So I think there are, there are tools being developed that are new, but starting with a basic framework of the intent and the purpose that it's solving in the portfolio, and then um, how you want to size the trade and looking at the basic metrics that you always would are great places to start. Hmm. To what you said earlier about trying to figure out what you want to achieve in your portfolio, I, I'm just curious from you, because so much of that uh, in, is involved with uh, your your outlook on where things are going to go in the future in the markets. Um, can you share some some insight for us and what you see your factor-based uh, outlook uh, for the rest of the year. I mean, where where are there opportunities? Um, where are there challenges? Are there specific uh, single-factor or multi-factor strategies that investors should be specifically looking at at this kind of unique moment in time or avoiding or what? Yeah, it's, it's so it's it's funny that you ask because it's it, it's top of mind for everyone right now. I mean, I I've been kind of joking, not joking that if I had a crystal ball about where the economy was going, I would be putting it to good use and be on some beach in in Fiji with a drink in hand, but we all know I'm not going to hop on an airplane right now. So um so kind of not true in this environment. But I I think the the concept, the fundamental concept that you have to know where the economy is going to know how to invest today and specifically when thinking across that factor landscape and what products might be most appropriate for you, I think is a, is a little bit flawed. And so this answer is going to be maybe slightly less interesting than, um, than you want. But the, I think the, the other and perhaps right now most salient way to look at factor investments in a portfolio is to really go back fundamentally to how you've constructed the portfolio and recognize a couple key trends that are persistent 
and probably will be persistent regardless of how what where you think the economy is going over the near term. So first, we've seen volatility spike. And during that volatility spike in the market, what we saw was correlations among and between asset classes really converge towards one. And so what that showed us is that, again, in periods of heightened volatility, you have less diversification benefits between asset classes. In addition to that, what we have seen with interest rates near zero and and near all-time lows and likely going to be there for quite some time, we're seeing less diversification benefits between stocks and bonds. And so for your average investor, markets are riskier and their portfolio is riskier because they're not getting the same diversification benefits between asset classes that they used to. And so in that environment, what we're spending a lot of time talking with clients about is simply the need to, one, rebalance, reset your portfolio back to your strategic asset allocation because that's the asset allocation you want for the long run, but perhaps consider doing so with less risky equity investments like minimum volatility through USMV or quality through QUAL. Um, just to name kind of the U.S. tickers there, this certainly extends internationally as well. But consider those lower risk ways of accessing the equity markets to help reduce overall and total portfolio risk in this environment. And that's a change you could make today without even knowing or prognosticating about where the economy is going. So I can certainly give you a, you know, a more fun answer that, that has to do with the economy, but I don't <laughs> think you have to get that fancy um, to get to a result that leverages factors really intentionally in a portfolio. Totally fair. Yeah, what I think is interesting is that, you know, even within, say, you know, a low vol versus min vol uh, strategies, we saw that happen this year, which can catch people by surprise if you are trying to time factors and time the market, is that, you know, during that March massive decline, a purely low vol strategy actually really performed poorly, where a min vol strategy like USMV held its own a little bit better. So, it's uh, it's always risky when you're trying to to time factors. You have to think of them longer term. Is what you're saying? Well, yes, and that tees up, you know, that that second point that I gave when in terms of how you think about the investment. So the first is the objective it's trying to achieve. The second is recognize where it sits in the portfolio and look at the basic attributes and understand risks that you may be taking embedded within that decision of going lower risk. Low vol versus min vol is a fantastic example here. One is unconstrained across sectors, investing simply in the least risky stocks, very intuitive at the top level, but ends up having pretty strong, oftentimes, sector tilts within that underlying portfolio. And in short time horizons and in highly volatile markets, that can result in a, in a material performance differential, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. USMV was constructed and our whole minimum volatility suite has, has the same basic methodology framework to balance sector exposures. So we're constraining sectors to be within 5% of the market cap weight of that sector specifically for that, that reason, to make sure that we're not taking an outsized and unintended bet on a sector that might have some idiosyncratic news in a particular period of time. Think energy and, and oil prices through that, um, through that sell-off. And by controlling for that, it makes it a very appropriate investment at the core of clients' portfolios, which is why I think it's critical for due diligence, as basic as it sounds. Mm-hmm. In your conversations with clients, um, you know, the year of COVID-19 that threw so much into a spin, have you found that are investors thinking about factors differently? Are they investing differently? Are they concerned about different things now? 
Or do you think the message stays the same and the implementation of factor investing in ETF portfolios stays the same? Uh, yeah, so I think we've iShares has been investing in what we believe will be exel- accelerative trends in client portfolios for some time now. The kind of three key pillars of that have been factors, mega trends, and sustainable investments. And I think what COVID-19 has really shown us is that, in fact, these trends that we thought were going to be accelerative over the long run, that were going to be beneficial investments in client portfolios over the long run, those trends have come to fruition far faster than anyone had anticipated. You know, we certainly would never have predicted this environment that we're in, but I think it really highlights the benefits of all three of those types of investments. And so, you know, for factors, we're typically talking about longer run trends. So oftentimes now we're, we're thinking about the economic impact of COVID-19. And if you believe, um, as you know, certainly we're cautiously optimistic, but getting increasingly more cautious as a firm on the outlook for the economy, if you if you believe that unemployment by year end is perhaps improved, but still quite high relative to long run standards, perhaps you believe that the economy is going to rebound, but with fits and starts in a slow way, think something that looks similar, maybe not to the same magnitude, but similar to the global financial crisis. That's a type of environment where you want to be positioned fairly defensively. If you expect that markets are going to rebound strongly in the near term in a very sustained and systematic way, I think of, you know, I imagine the world where all of a sudden we have this major breakthrough on a vaccine and it is highly accessible to many people, if not everyone, in very short order with few side effects and we can all go back to work in our normal lives. In that environment, you would expect value in small cap investing to rebound. So we can we can use factors to play through the economic outlook. But I think um, even more so, we're seeing investors turn toward things like sectors and megatrends in this environment to express their view on precisely those themes that are becoming most salient in this world. Now, when you, I just want to step um, step back for a second. When you say megatrends, how is that different than uh, just a regular trend? <laughs> um, you're right. It sounds it sounds like a um, a very loaded word. When we think about megatrends, um, we are thinking about specifically thematic trends that will lead to, we believe, long-term growth. So think about things like you know, global infrastructure, clean energy investment, or most salient today, exponential technology development. So things like cloud computing. Um, and, and in healthcare in particular, we're talking about Um, pharmaceuticals, we're talking about human genomics. We're talking about those innovations that we think are going to fundamentally change our lives over the long run and benefit from our changing lifestyles over the long run. And so when I think about this environment today, like, you know, we've seen massive flows into traditional technology and healthcare funds. And in many cases, I think the investment thesis is different than the underlying investment that that individuals are getting when they're buying these very broad sectors. And so the the megatrends are far more thematic in nature and therefore a little bit narrower and a little bit less constrained and I think are delivering those outcomes far more effectively. You said that the thematic, uh, or rather that investors are, they think they're buying one thing, but they're actually getting another thing. Can you um, elaborate a little bit on that uh, with regards to, to these megatrends? 
Yeah, I, absolutely. So let's let's take healthcare first. Um, okay. Investors that I've been talking to in this environment are interested in expressing a view on healthcare primarily to play vaccines and therapeutics, right? They want to invest in the companies that are innovating to help get us out of this crisis and also thereby are more likely to benefit from investment during the crisis. The challenge is that traditional healthcare sector funds are in some cases first too broad. So they're incorporating, yes, alongside companies playing in that area, traditional HMOs, generic drug manufacturers like Tylenol. Right. Um, and at the same time, sectors can also be really concentrated. So, so many of these are market cap weighted. The S&P Healthcare Index has more than half of its market cap in just 10 stocks. So instead, I think what we're finding is that a closer match between the investment thesis and reality can come with subsector and megatrends ETFs, which are either getting more granular within that sector world or are specifically designed to capture long-run trends, again, like, like human genomics. So a couple examples here are we have a NASDAQ biotech fund, which is investing in biotech and healthcare stocks listed on NASDAQ. The ticker there is IBB. And then we have a hum human genomics, immunology, and healthcare ETF, whose ticker is IDNA, that is specifically targeting and then therefore has heavy investment in some of these companies that are, are really making the news through, through the COVID time and the COVID innovations. Yeah, I think in that space, what we still see a lot is uh, there's still a maybe a fear of missing on the mega caps, even though I think the mega caps get a lot are not getting a lot of love lately. Uh, they tend to be big market movers. So the the thematic play still kind of takes that role of the satellite thematic play. Do you find that investors are ready to just go all in on these narrower subsector plays as their entire, say, healthcare allocation, as opposed to just, you know, hold on to your broad healthcare just in case and then add it on the side? Yeah, I mean, so let me give you some perspective on performance differential in this environment. And I think we'll see that I, while I will agree, being, again, a factor investor for a long time and seeing the disparity between value and growth and, and, and all of those conversations mainly driven, you're right, by mega cap stocks that have been running and continue to run. I, I recognize the point you're making there. But when we think about very granular spaces like healthcare versus, say, an iDNA, if we take a $100,000 investment in this space through either of those funds and we go peak back to or peak to today, I guess we're not we're not back at another peak again, but through the sell off and then the subsequent rebound. So February 19th to May 31st, IDNA, our human genomics fund, would have returned $20,000 more than a traditional healthcare investment. And so in these spaces, when we're talking about making an investment in a specific theme, we're not really finding that same trend of, um, you know, mega caps driving the market and needing to um, control for some of that idiosyncratic risk. Now, with that being said, neither of these would be an entirety of a client's portfolio. So maintaining balance across that broader allocation, again, with, with funds like USMV to control for risk, mm -hmm. I think can be, can be super helpful. But where you are making a bet on the market, I think it's really important to make sure that that investment and that view is being expressed properly in the portfolio because that in itself is an active decision. And it's a decision that you're taking that's deviating from the market broadly. <laughs> well, before Lara jumps into uh, the ESG um, question, <laughs> you can you can feel me chomping at the bit to talk about ESG. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming, it's coming. I just want to ask a question. 
uh, about value. So we have been watching people get really excited and really disappointed at every, you know, head fake value investing has given us in the last 10 years. Um, so what camp are you in? Are we going to see value all of a sudden resurge and be the story of the day? Or do we have a long way to go before we really look into value investing? Um, <laughs> so a, a couple, a couple thoughts there. First is factors tend to be cyclical and when we think about the economy as a driver for performance, value in small cap stocks tend to do best when the economy is recovering. So I think about the value stocks at their basic form tend to be companies that have a lot of um, capital efficiencies in how they're structured. So they have, you know, auto manufacturers, I think are a great example. Lots of property, plant, and equipment designed to do one specific thing. When people are buying cars, you can churn out cars really efficiently. And so there's a lot of um, efficiencies there. But when people stop buying cars, think later stages of the economic cycle, a General Motors can't pivot those, those lines to do something else. They have to simply wait. And so when we think about value, it tends to be most accelerative as the economy is expanding in the early stages of an upswing, because value companies tend to be the ones that are most beat down in that drawdown and therefore can and, and have efficiencies that allow them to recover far more efficiently in an expansion. We've been in a period of slow, steady, late stage economic growth for quite some time. So in that context, it's not surprising that value over a protracted period of time has underperformed. And as a result, I have no reason to believe that when we come out of this economic slowdown and we head into an actual acceleration out of a trough, which we haven't seen in the last decade, that value will come back. Now, I'm not going to prognosticate you know, if, if this is a slow 2008-like recovery or if it's a faster 2001-like recovery. I, we could spend all day on that. Um, but I do fundamentally believe that we are at a different stage of the economic cycle today than we have seen in the last decade. And that is far more constructive for the prospects of value providing growth in a portfolio in the near term, um, certainly than it has been. <laughs> All right. Camp value. Got it. <laughs> value is not dead. I will firmly say I do not believe value well, is I'm probably dead. <laughs> sure you're, you're going to say that uh, ESG isn't dead either because uh, we've seen enormous flows uh, going into ESG ETFs this year, especially iShares ETFs, which, I mean, just the, cornered the market basically in that space. Let's So let's talk a little bit about why, right? So who is investing in these funds and to what extent is is this organic demand uh you know and 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 just give some color here like what is it about this moment in particular that is striking a chord with investors and making them say you know this is my time i'm going to move to esg funds i love that you asked and i want to say Everything, everything about this moment. Um, let, let's talk through that a little bit. But I, I guess just to take a step back, as, as you're aware, in January of this year, as a firm, we outlined a series of initiatives that were intended to make sustainability integral to the way that BlackRock manages risk, the way that we construct portfolios across our active and our passive framework. And at the center of these efforts really has been our investment view that sustainability integrated portfolios can provide clients with better long-term risk-adjusted returns. I think, as we all know, the challenge has been that they these 
indexes and these products haven't really existed long enough to prove that point to clients. And so this environment, I think we can talk through the E and the S and the G, and I think we can all just sit here and intuit why they're important, but let's dig into that a little bit. Um, but I think more so, we saw a market correction and we have seen really material and impactful performance differences and in performance improvements, particularly during that drawdown with some of these, with these sustainable products. And so I think it really has proven that ESG is about impacting um, risk and return profiles for clients and that they are beneficial investments in a portfolio and therefore increasingly important. So I, th I think the data first and foremost solidifies the point that we have been making for quite some time now and that investors have been looking for. The environment in itself is, is favorable to the concept, but the investment results I think are speaking for themselves. Have you found that uh, the the way that investors are engaging uh, with ESG investing uh, is maybe their priorities are shifting? You for the longest time, I, I guess I'd say values based investors have been very kind of narrowly focused on the environmental side of things. But um, you know, are they kind of broadening out in your perspective into the S and to the G, taking a more holistic approach to all three? Like. How is it shifting? It is definitely shifting. And and I think the, you know, governance issues and certainly social issues are even coming more to the fore in this environment where all of a sudden everyone's working from home. And certainly we've seen um, the the need for greater inclusion and diversity. And, and we've seen the studies. I mean, I, I, many of us have probably read, I certainly have a lot of studies that talk about having a more diverse workforce, how having a more diverse workforce can um, lead to better financial results, more better decision-making um, Etc. And I think I think the environment that we're in right now is just bringing these concepts back to the fore. What we've really seen is that clients today that are turning to ESG are no longer simply those that are doing so for values-based reasons. That's that is certainly where this started. But now they're realizing that performance, risk management, portfolio construction, ESG can can and should be integrated into all of these components. And you know, we we talk about this as though it's a it's a separate category and a separate thing. I, I have long said my nirvana for factor investments will be that when you turn on CNBC and you see people talking about uh a value rally or a momentum crash, just like you hear them talking about tech and healthcare and um, consumer discretionary sectors on the news. And, and in the same vein, I think describing investments through the language of factors when we talk about risk and return is important. And so if we, if we take that step of understanding what high quality companies are, what we look, understand and realize when we look at ESG investments is that they tend to be very aligned with factor investments, specifically quality. So a lot of these social and governance issues are actually aligned with and tend to be highly correlated with higher quality investments. And so we're seeing factors play out as a, as a driver of risk return in sustainable portfolios, which makes me not surprised that they have provided some defensive characteristics during this sell-off. Makes sense. Well, unfortunately, we are going to have to leave it there. Um, thank you so much to uh, our guest, Holly Framstead, for the great conversation, the wide-ranging conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been it's been a pleasure. Uh, for more info on factor investing or really any ETF topic uh, or to catch up on past episodes, please visit us at ETF.com. And for more information on how to get involved in women in ETFs, please visit womeninetfs.com. You can write to us with your questions, your comments, your thoughts. We love feedback uh, at ETF Working Lunch. That's all one word at ETF.com. On behalf of myself, 
my colleagues and Jim Murphy and the rest of the ETF.com team. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.